Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. I imagine that many of you have seen this picture before. A group of blind people with an elephant. And they're trying to figure out what it is. And you can see there that one of them's got their hand on the tail, which is a dangerous place to put your hand with an elephant, I would have thought. And they think maybe it's a fan. Another has found the leg, and it's large, and it's cold, and it's straight, and they think, well, maybe it's a tree trunk. No single person can perceive the whole thing because they're blind. They only have personal exposure to one aspect of what it is to be an elephant when Actually, the elephant has many diverse parts. Behind me is a mountain that's quite special to me. If I was Māori and I was doing my mihi, it would be in there. It's Aruapehu. This is the same mountain here from a different angle. And another when the weather is a bit more intense, as it often is up there. And another pic from above that shows it's a volcano. And lastly, it's very clear that it's Ruapehu because there is the Chateau Tongariro Hotel. Ruapehu means two noses, which are not always clearly visible depending on the angle of sight that you're looking at the mountain. My farming family's homestead is in the hill country just south of Ruapehu. The mountain dominates the local weather. It all seems to come down from the side of the mountain. Sometimes you can't see it. Other times, with light and weather, it looks very, very different. Well, we know that Jesus died for us in our place. And that as a result, those who turn to him and believe in him are forgiven. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 14-21. For the love of Christ urges us on. Because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. We were saved from our sins to live a different way. To live as he would have us live. The cross is not just some sort of transaction whereby our sins are cancelled. It's the beginning of a whole new way of life. A life lived for Jesus. Paul continues, From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ... There is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. When we turn to the Lord, something extraordinary happens. We are made anew. Paul continues again. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. 
Since God is making his appeal through us, we entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Reconciliation is a key word that I'm going to pull out of this passage because one of the ways that scripture expresses the meaning of the cross. It's one angle to look at that mountain from. That God was bringing us, all of us, to be together with him. In fact, in him. The forgiveness one on the cross opens the way for true reconciliation. We approach the Lord humbly on our knees, acknowledging our sin and rebellion, much like the younger son in Jesus' story. Do you know this one? There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that would belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he travelled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he'd spent everything, a severe famine took place through that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up, go up to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like you would one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, Quick, bring out a robe, best one, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Love that story. Likewise, the Lord embraces all of us and it's party time to celebrate our homecoming. But for us, it doesn't stop there. We are commissioned to be ambassadors who are sent out to invite others to that same celebration, to party. That's one view of the mountain, reconciliation. Another view is that of battlefield. On the cross, Jesus defeated Satan and co, but even more fundamentally, and I think more importantly than that, he defeated sin and death. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15:57, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like we get to share in the spoils of that victory. The challenge, I think, though, with understanding this aspect of the cross is that human experience of the last 2,000 years since Jesus walked this earth has not been particularly peaceful or victorious. Evil has often seemed to have prospered, in fact, often had the whip hand 
over the affairs of nations and people. Our most recent century, the 20th century, possibly the bloodiest of all of them. The best way I can think to explain this paradox is to use World War II as an example, the major conflict of that very bloody 20th century. 80 years ago, in the middle of 1942, Nazi Germany and Japan were both at the peak of their powers. They occupied the most territory they would ever occupy. If you look at this map, Germany dominated continental Europe. A good slab of North Africa, almost to the Suez Canal. Most of European Russia, as far as the Caucasus Mountains. To this point, the war had gone stunningly well for them. Seemingly the only person in Germany who was worried about their prospects was a general named Georg Thomas. He was not some strategy whiz kid, he was a sort of an economics and supply guy, a planning guy. And he didn't think that Germany could sustain the size of empire that it had at that point. Its economy was just not big enough and it was dwarfed by the productive capacity of the US, the British Empire, and Russia that was then ranged against Hitler. Now, predictably, Hitler was not terribly interested in Thomas's opinion, as he thought that Russia would collapse any day, something that he had been expecting any day now for at least a year since the initial invasion. Now, Germany lasted another three long, bitter, bloody years from that time till its defeat. And even then, it still occupied a fair bit of Europe, as you can see in this map, with military forces of two million men still under arms. But to get to that point, there were two key battles that pointed to Germany's ultimate defeat. The first was in Stalingrad, Russia, when in February 1953, after a five-month house-by-house, factory-by-factory, street-by-street, battle that resulted in two million casualties in that one place, the German 6th Army surrendered. Germany was deep in Russia, but from that point on the die was cast. Whatever happened in the West and elsewhere, Russia was going to beat Germany. Russia lost more men and material in that battle, but it could replace its losses, whereas Germany couldn't, and it had this insoluble shortage of oil. That's one. The second was D-Day in June 1944, when the Allied forces landed in Normandy. Now, initially, they just had a toehold, five beaches. But they survived the week, and they were able to reinforce those initial invaders. At that point, victory on the Western Front was assured. It was just a question of time. In both of these cases, the initial land retaken was tiny, a couple of square kilometres each but incredibly significant. Now, it's true that millions of people died in those two years until Germany surrendered, including over 400,000 Hungarian Jews who were marched off to their death at Auschwitz in 1944. But ultimate victory was inevitable. But that didn't mean that every battle in the meantime would be won. They weren't. The loss of life in those two years was eye-watering. The cross is a bit like that too. Initially, it's one man, Jesus. 
then quickly it's a few thousand followers. But, but that's a drop in a bucket given the vastness of the Roman Empire. One day every knee will bow before Jesus, but in the meantime, sin, suffering and death roll on. Jesus will ultimately win the war. But certainly not every battle in the meantime. Well, that's the battlefield. Another view of the mountain was what I talked about last week, was that of the courtroom. Firstly, that through faith in Jesus, we are justified before God. We are put into a right relationship before God. Our sin offends against the moral fabric of the good universe that God created. So in God's justice and righteousness, it needs to be addressed. But it's not just a question of the penalty for sin being paid for. Right relationship with God means that we are in Christ. Crucified him and raised to life with him. As I read out earlier from Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. When I was a younger Christian, one of the issues that occupied a lot of talk was could you lose your salvation? In other words, could you confess your sins and be made new, then walk out the door for free pass to live as sinfully as you might like to? My question now is how could someone truly in Christ actually do that? Salvation is more than just receiving that free gift of forgiveness. It's making us into ambassadors of Christ. We've had a fundamental change of allegiance, if you like. We're like someone who's given up their New Zealand citizenship for that of another country, but still lives and works here. There's no going back. A second legal word picture is that we have been adopted into God's family. Because of sin, we weren't born into God. But adoption makes your adopting parents to be legally your parents. Our legal status has been changed. Instead of being the property of sin and death, we are now God's adopted sons and daughters, co-heirs with Jesus. It's courtroom. Fourth view of the mountain comes from captivity. In Mark 10.45, Jesus said, He came to give his life as a ransom for many, freeing us from the bondage of sin. Now, the early church got a bit fixated on this metaphor and inferred that the ransom was paid to Satan, who had some sort of legal hold on us that needed to be discharged. This was a classic case, I think, of taking the analogy too far. The New Testament does not give Satan that kind of importance. There's also the image I mentioned last week of the slave being brought back at the slave market and being freed. And if you think about it, it's a profound thing. Because when a slave is freed, their legal status changes from being property to being a person. To being listed on the asset register of a slave owner to being a fully human person. Significant. And the last view of the mountain, and you'll enjoy this, Al, because it's the last view, that I will transverse, is from a hospital bed. Jesus is our healer and sin is our viral pandemic that affects us all. We're in recovery, the fever's broken, but yeah, we're on our way to full health, but we're not quite there yet. 
As Isaiah said in chapter 53 about God's suffering servant, by his stripes we are healed. Jesus himself used this metaphor when he was hanging out with renowned sinners. He said that, well, the healthy don't need a doctor. He came to hang out with the ill because they did. And they knew it. Well, however we got here, if we've made it to the foot of the cross, if we've confessed our shortcomings and committed ourselves to following the Lord, then we truly are different people. We will struggle with sin, sure. Perhaps illness or disability, personal losses, the hard stuff of life. We are called to be Jesus' ambassadors, representing him to a suffering world. Now in the recent past, many Christians have understood this to mean that they needed to know a lot and be able to confound unbelievers with the cleverness of their advocacy or their argument. Well, the truth is, no one likes a clever dick. They never did. The more I've gone on in the faith, the more that I think that like Jesus, taking time with people, listening to their stories, and gently pointing them to the Lord is not a bad evangelism strategy. Who in your day-to-day world needs someone to be a godly friend? Pray for them and get alongside them and see what happens. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus' sacrifice. We thank you for all that it means, for the love that embodies, but also for the mysteriousness of it. We're still getting our heads around it. Lord, bring to our minds the people in our lives who you are drawing to yourself and help us to be good friends to those people, witnesses to your love and grace and salvation. In Jesus' name we pray.